Good to see you tonight. Revelation 13. Revelation 13. In this series where we are focusing on the book of Revelation as a book of worship of our God, some of you who've read this chapter probably think, where in the world are we going to get the worship of God out of Revelation 13 when everyone's worshiping the beast in Revelation 13? Well, we're going to hopefully turn that around tonight as we go through this chapter. But I will say this. One of the things that we learn in Revelation 13 is that God is clearly telling us and told folks a long time ago that there's a coming day where there would be one world government, there would be one world religion, and there would be a one world economy. And obviously, hundreds if not thousands of years ago, that seemed so far-fetched. But folks, we are living in the day and age where we see that coming about. We see the nations of the world coming together. We see the one world economy uh, having its foundation being laid. And, and we see all of this happening within our lifetime. The other thing that Revelation 13 teaches us is that there is a unholy trinity just like there is a holy trinity. Again, Satan can't ever do anything original. He's always counterfeiting what God has already done or who God already is. And so we see in Revelation 13, the great dragon who is Satan. We are now going to be introduced tonight to the beast out of the sea, who in other places is called the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness. And then we're also going to be introduced tonight to the beast out of the earth. Again, in other places in Revelation, he's called the false prophet. So like you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the unholy trinity would be made up of the great serpent Satan. Then you would have the Antichrist, the instead of Christ. And then you would have the false prophet corresponding to the Holy Spirit. All of this contained within Revelation chapter 13 tonight. But I want to start out where we ended last week, where we saw that the great dragon is standing on the sand of the seashore. And he is looking out over the nations of the earth, seeking some instrument by which he can work through and once again seek to thwart or undermine the work of God. The, the thing that I want us to, to get from this is just how important it is that we yield ourselves as instruments of God and that we don't become instruments of Satan. Because, folks, even those who follow Jesus can become instruments in Satan's hands rather than instruments in God's hands. We even talked about spiritual warfare on Sunday out of 1 Peter and how our spiritual adversary, like a roaring lion, is always on the prowl, prowl seeking whom he may devour, whom he may demoralize and demobilize in their uh, effectiveness to serve Christ. He can't have us 
But he can certainly render us ineffective to be used by Christ. And, and when Christ saves us, he saves us, as we're going to see on Sunday, to, to surrender to his purpose and to serve him. And to be used by him to impact and influence other people in a positive way. And so we need to remember that these beasts that are coming up out of the sea and the earth are simply instruments in Satan's hands. They have allowed themselves, they have opened themselves up to Satan to use. And we have to be careful of that. Keep your finger in Revelation 13 and go back to the Gospel of Matthew. I want us to be reminded of this principle because it's such an important principle. To Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. I want us to see tonight how we need to be careful that even as followers of Christ, we do not end up being instruments of Satan rather than instruments of God. I want you to begin following with me in Matthew 16, in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and experts in the law, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now, notice what Peter's doing in verse 22. So Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? And then it goes on to say, God forbid, Lord, this must not happen to you. Now notice something here. Again, from a human perspective, we would think, well, all Peter's trying to do is spare the Lord, right? That, that's what he, He's trying to protect Jesus. That's a good thing, right? Notice Jesus' response. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, who? Satan. Why is he saying that? Because at this moment, Peter is not an instrument in God's hands. Peter has become an instrument in Satan's hands because he is seeking to keep Jesus from his appointed a purpose for being here on earth from God's will, if you will, for his life. And even though it may seem well-meaning, it is totally out of God's will. And he has become now an instrument of Satan. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, you are a stumbling block to me because you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's interests. See, when we get our eyes and perspective off of God's interests and God's glory, and and we start getting our interest on us and making it about us and man's interests, then, and if we start to promote that, and if we start to push that kind of agenda, even as a believer in Jesus Christ, we can end up being an instrument in Satan's hands rather than God's hands. And we can even be well-meaning. We can think we're doing something good. How many well-meaning even maybe Christians down through history thought they were really doing God a service or the church a service by what they were setting forth. And in actuality, it was totally against God's will. Totally. 
And so we need to be careful of this. Because just like we see in Revelation 13 and throughout the Word of God, Satan is always looking for instruments that he can work through. And that's why we have to make sure that we are filled with the Word of God and filled with the Spirit of God and that we are always seeking things above, not things on the earth, and that we are not seeking man's interests, but we are seeking God's interests and promoting them. Or else we can end up falling in line with Satan's ultimate purpose, which is to thwart and undermine the plan and purposes of God. Back to Revelation 13. The other thing before we get into this chapter, because we're going to go through it pretty quickly tonight, is this. What this chapter is teaching us, reminding us of, focusing on so much tonight, is that God created us to worship. God created human beings to be worshipers. And therefore, if I am not worshiping God, if I am not yielding, surrendering, bowing down, if you will, to God, then I am automatically going to be worshiping, bowing down, serving someone or something else in my life. There is no such thing on earth, ever has been, from the time God created Adam and Eve. There's never been a human being that has not worshipped. It's just, what are they worshipping? Who are they worshipping? Because human beings were created by God to worship. And that's why this chapter, again, is just reminding us and reemphasizing the fact of why it's so important that we, as human beings, throw ourselves into the worship of the true God. Because if we don't, we will end up bowing down and worshiping something or someone else in our lives besides God. Because that's how God created us. We were created with that desire for, for worship. And, and that's why religion has always been such an appeal. Because it goes back to that innate thing that God created within us. And what we see in Revelation 13 tonight is simply this. Those who have forsaken worshiping God end up worshiping a beast. That's what happened. It's like Paul said. Whenever they found no place in their hearts for the truth, they ended up being susceptible to all this deception and false teaching. That's what happens. If we're not filling our lives with what we should be, then we end up filling our lives with things that shouldn't be there. It's just automatic. It's the way we are going to be. So everybody, every human being worships someone or something. That, that is what this chapter is reminding us of. And we see this again very clearly, very plainly uh, tonight. So, verse 1. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Now, for many of you, the ocean may be a wonderful place. You like to go there. You like to vacation there. You may even want to live there. 
For you, the, the ocean, the sea is a place of relaxation, refreshment, whatever. But you've got to understand from the mindset of Jews in Jesus' day and even up to this day, Jews don't look at the ocean or sea that way. They look at the sea and the ocean as a mysterious place to be feared. A a place that is always in chaos. A a place that is always restless, if you will. And so when you see the word sea or ocean used in the Bible, especially from a Jewish perspective, it's usually not a positive thing. It's usually a negative thing. And what John, I think, is, is sharing here with us is that this beast is coming up out of the chaotic restlessness that exists on the earth at this time. And we see, even in our day and age, a growing chaotic restlessness in the world. We even see that restlessness creeping into the church amongst Christians who cannot be settled, but have this constant restlessness to this and that, and and there is no settledness in their life. God wants to build a serene settledness into His people rather than a chaotic restlessness. The other thing that we see in verse 1 is this. Out of all the meanings of the word beast here, the one that stood out to me was that it means one who is bent on destruction. And that's what this beast is all about. That's what these beasts will be all about that the world worships. They're not bent on the welfare or the good of the people who literally bow down and worship them. They are bent on destruction, on destroying people, on ruining their lives, on devouring them, if you will. And yet, as we're going to see, here's this great God. Here's this good God. And yet they refuse to worship a God who created them and who loves them so much, and they end up falling down upon their knees and worshiping a beast who only has their destruction in mind. How tragic. But that's what happens when we forsake the truth. So I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, and I saw these ten horns and these seven heads. We've talked a little bit about this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in all this, you know, this detail. I believe that what Revelation is simply reminding us of, again, is that the Antichrist will be ahead of a a multi-entity system that will control things at the end of time. I don't think Christians should get into, you know, well, what about, is it this nation, that nation, this could be, look. First of all, I don't think a lot of this is going to be clear till after the rapture takes place and the church is gone anyway. I think things will become much clearer after that all takes place and there's even a greater shift in what's going on in the world after all the Christians in the church is gone from here. So I think a lot of Christians spend a lot of time trying to get to the bottom of things that if God really wanted us to know these things specifically, He would have told us more than what He's told us. All He's simply telling us is, is this beast out of the sea, the Antichrist, will have different entities that He will ultimately control at the end of time that will be sort of the political movers and shakers and power brokers uh, of the end time. On its heads... 
a blasphemous name, and also on its horns were ten diadem crowns. Just speaking again about the rule and reign over which the Antichrist and his kingdom one day, in a sense, the worldwide influence that he will have. But notice this blasphemous name. It means to to detract, excuse me, from the divine majesty of God. That's what this blasphemous name means. It is, he's trying to detract from who God is. That's what Satan always tries to do. He tries to somehow damage God's character. He tries to call God's character and nature into question. He is always trying to distract and detract from God. And therefore the beast who is going to be empowered by Satan, is going to just continue exactly what Satan's tried to do ever since he fell from his position. Notice verse 2. Now the beast that I saw was like a leopard, but its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And you can take these three animals, and you can go through all the characteristics of it. I think simply what John is trying to tell us is that, that this is, is going to be a mixture of different world empires that have existed, but it's also going to be unique in the end of time as well. It's going to have some of the characteristics of other you know, nations and, and world empires like Daniel talks about, that John is talking about here, but it's going to be different and unique as well. Here's the main thing I want you to see from verse 2. The dragon gave the beast his power, the dragon gave the beast his throne, and the dragon gave the beast his great authority to rule. See, this is a mere human being, the Antichrist. He's just a human being, as we're going to see later on tonight. But it is the dragon, the great serpent, Satan, who empowers him, who gives him power, who gives him a place of prominence, his throne, who gives him worldwide influence of authority to rule over the world. He is being energized and empowered by Satan. Now, let's flip that around. That might seem very impressive and daunting and intimidating and whatever to a lot of people. But let's remember this as Christians because this is about worshiping God and focusing on Him and not focusing on the Antichrist more than Christ or the beast more than the good God. God does the same thing with us. Only instead of a mere, the mere power that Satan can have because he's just a creature just like any angel that God created, the Bible teaches us as God's children that God Himself empowers us, that God Himself gives us a place of prominence, that God Himself is the one who will give us the influence to be able to shine our light for Him. God will do that for us if we choose to follow Him. And and His Obviously, greatness far exceeds that of the dragon because the dragon, again, as we talked about last week, is just simply a mere angel. Someone that God created. We know the uncreated. We know the immortal God. We know the invisible God. You see. 
And so, though this will seem impressive to people in the world, this should not impress us because we know that we have all this and can have all this from God Himself. Now, it says in verse 3, one of the beast's heads appeared to have been killed or mortally wounded, but the lethal wound had been healed. And somehow, because of what is happening here with, with the beast or the Antichrist or, or someone that the beast is connected with, that through this satanic supernatural power that Satan is, is doing, it appears as if there's been a, a miraculous you know, miracle, healing. And because of that, notice the whole world then follows the beast in amazement. The word follow means to fall in line behind. Now again, think about this. Instead of falling in line behind God, instead of falling in line behind Jesus, who said to his followers, come, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, because they have rejected Jesus Christ, because they've rejected God, now they're falling in line behind a beast. Why? Because they're going to worship something. They're going to worship someone. And when they reject the true worship of the true God, they will begin to fill their lives with worshiping someone or something else. And notice, they're amazed at the supernatural power that the beast has. Now again, remember, it's not his power. He's being empowered by Satan. And yet they're amazed at it. Literally, the word means they marvel. They wonder at it. They stand in awe. Think about that. They stand in awe of Satan's power, but they never stood in awe or marveled or wondered at God and His power and what God has done and what God can do. Think about this for a minute. Even as a Christian, we, you and I as human beings, we can't even begin to fathom how big the universe is that God created. And we can't, we can't, our minds can't go out and, and grab all that, this, even the universe that we think we know and somehow bring it all into a manageable thing in our minds. We can't do that. And yet even that universe, this vast universe, if God had fingers, that vast universe could fit between two fingers. It's nothing. God is so immense. He is so far beyond even this universe that seems so big and immense and vast to us. It's nothing to God. And that's why God says, this little bitty universe that I created, that seems to impress you because it's so big, and I threw these stars out there and, and all this, and, 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 and yet... You as human beings somehow look at all that and instead of standing in awe of me and, and, and wonder and, and amazement, you one day will stand in amazement of Satan, this mere creation of mine and his limited power rather than my unlimited power as God. And that's why when we came to the book of Revelation, in no way was my purpose going to be that we were going to focus on antichrists and beasts and Satan because, folks, 
We have a God that we need to continually stand in awe of. We have a God that we should be marveling about and wondering at every day of our lives, what He's done and what He can do and what we've even read that He's done throughout history. We should stand with our mouths open and go, Oh my, I worship you, God. You are amazing. You are beyond anything that I could ever imagine. And yet, human beings will devolve and get to the point where instead of worshiping the one true and only good, wise, majestic, great God, they fall down before a beast. They fall down before a beast. How sad. And notice, verse 4, they worshiped the dragon because he had given ruling authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast too, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war against him? In other words, we're so impressed by his supernatural powers and the miracles and signs that he can do that he's invincible. Invincible? All God has to do is think it and he's done. You see how warped man gets whenever he starts worshiping the wrong thing? Who is like the beast? What great songs we sang tonight. Because they go along and remind us the words of those praise songs of reminding ourselves there's, there's no one like God. Forget who's like the beast. He's a mere human being who's being empowered by Satan. And yes, he will impress the world. And I'm not saying that, you know, he's not going to do some unbelievable things, but compared to God and what God has done even in our own lives and what God will do, he's nothing. Listen to these verses out of the Word of God. Isaiah writes, To whom can you... Or, uh, uh, speaking, God is speaking here, but it's written in the book of Isaiah. To whom can you compare me, God says? Whom do I resemble, says the Holy One. David wrote in 2 Samuel, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no one beside you. And then Moses writes in Exodus, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, fearful in praises, working wonders. That's God. Instead of coming before the beast and saying, oh, who is like the beast? We should be coming before our God going, who is like you? You're amazing. When we start to think about the attributes and just the things that God has revealed, and let's remember something, because God is infinite, even all the things that we know about God's nature and character and attributes are still very limited. God hasn't shown us anything yet about all that he is. We're just getting, we're just getting a wee little sample, even in the word of God, of all that God is. He's so much bigger than even he has already revealed to us. And yet somehow, even as believers, we want to somehow bring God down and, 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 and try to wrap our little minds around Him and bring Him down to our level where we can manage and even manipulate instead of letting Him be the God that He is. And so I hope tonight as we go through Revelation 13 
And we see this very tragic ending to humanity where one day humanity will even get to a point where they will worship a beast. One who's bent on their destruction. Instead of worshiping God, it reminds us and should motivate us and it should inspire us to be all the more greater worshipers of God. Because one day we will be doing that for all of eternity. So verse 6, the beast opened his mouth to blaspheme against God, to speak against God, to slander God, to blaspheme both his name, his dwelling place, that is even those who dwell in heaven. He's just blaspheming everything. Anything connected with God. Anyone who follows God. Notice he's not denying that there is a God. Notice he's not denying that there is a place in heaven that exists, or a place called heaven. He's not even denying that there's people up there right now. He's simply blaspheming them, you see. Because Satan knows. Satan knows the reality. And then the beast was permitted to go to war against the saints during the tribulation. Those who come to faith in Christ. And we know many will come to faith in Christ, but that most will probably be martyred or killed for their faith in Christ. And here again, this is emphasized when it says the beast was permitted to go to war against the saints and to conquer them. But again, like we've already said throughout the book of Revelation, this is a very temporary thing. Ultimately, They're victorious. When they die here on earth, they go to be with God in heaven for all of eternity. And so it's a very short-lived victory, if you will, for the beast. He was given ruling authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. So you see here, one day, the Bible predicts, there will be one man, this beast out of the sea, who will literally be a worldwide ruler to whom everyone will be impressed because of his supernatural powers being empowered by Satan and they will worship him instead of God. Notice verse 8. All those who live on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written since the foundation of the world in the book of life belonging to the lamb who was killed. John is simply saying it's incompatible to worship the beast and have your name in the book of life. That's incompatible. That doesn't happen. And notice that this was since the foundation of the world, since God laid the foundation. This isn't some afterthought, some quick fix, some quick response by God. God knew all this was going to be happening before it ever happened. Because he's in control. And then John says, if anyone has an ear, he had better listen. The word listen means to be attentive in order to comprehend. So verse 10 says, if anyone is meant for captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed by the sword, then by the sword he must be killed. It's simply a verse reminding us of the sovereignty of God in all of this, and that we need to yield and surrender to God's sovereign will during this time. Which is why then in verse 10 he says, this requires steadfast endurance and faith from the saints. Patient perseverance. Saints need to be patiently persevering. Even in this darkest hour, if they came to faith in Christ, they need to trust that God is on His throne, even though it looks like the beast is winning and the beast is taking over and Satan is winning. This is where our faith 
is tested and where it really kicks in, which is why John says this requires that kind of patience, perseverance, endurance, and faith, just like it does today. Which is why Paul said that we as believers better start learning to walk by faith and not by sight. Because there's going to be times where looking at the circumstances or looking at the things going on around us, it may seem that God is dead or God doesn't care or God is losing somehow or whatever. And we've got to come back and we've got to trust and put our confidence in God and what God has said, no matter what's going on and what it looks like. Because that's not what we base it on. If we truly trust God, then we will patiently persevere no matter what. And if it's God's will that we die a martyr, so be it. We trust in God. In closing tonight, I'd like you to go back to the Gospel of Luke and tie this together. Luke chapter 18. We'll talk a little bit about the beast out of the earth next week. I don't know about you, but I'd rather talk about God than beasts. Again, folks, these are mere, mere men. They're so much less than God. And yet, when we don't worship God, we will end up worshiping someone or something else. So, John says, especially during the tribulation, but any time during trials and tribulation and suffering and all of that, and even in our lives, what God requires of us is patient perseverance and endurance and faith. Not to trust in our feelings or in our circumstances, but to trust in His Word and in His character. And not give up and not lose heart. And Jesus speaks to this in Luke 18. Verse 1. Jesus told them a parable to show them that they should always pray and not lose heart. Always pray and not lose heart. Now, he gives them this parable, the unjust judge and the, the gal that was, you know, nagging the judge and all of that. But the essence of the parable is what Jesus expounds on in verse 6. So just drop down there with me. The Lord said, listen to what the unrighteous judge says. Won't God give justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long to help them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, I know it may look like, you know, things are out of control and that Satan is winning, uh, that the other side is winning and that, you know, where is God and what's God doing and all of this? And God is saying, you've got to continue to stay in touch with me and pray and, and, and stay in fellowship with me and not give up and not get discouraged and not lose heart because 
I am a God of justice and I am a God who will vindicate you. And I'm a God who's going to set things straight, but it's going to be in my time, in my perfect plan. And it's not going to be in our time with what we're comfortable with. And so God says, you've got to learn to patiently persevere through the hard, rough times. But what I have promised you will all come true in my time. That's where our faith has to come in. That's where our patient perseverance comes in, which is this then, this sobering question that Jesus asked at the end here in verse 8. Notice what he says. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And in the Greek language, the construction of that question is basically assuming a fairly negative answer. In other words, What's being said here is, when I come back, I don't think I'm going to find a lot of faith on the earth. I'm not going to find a lot of Christians who are patiently persevering and trusting in me. I'm going to find a lot of faithless Christians who have thrown in the towel, who've given up, who've become discouraged, who've lost heart, who've allowed the circumstances of life and the things of this world to get the better of them rather than trusting in me and patiently persevering and enduring in me. Which tells me and motivates me to be a person that tries to build my faith. And allow God to build my endurance and my perseverance. So that I won't give up. And I won't lose heart. And I won't get discouraged and disillusioned in my life. Or by the things that I see. And the things that's happening in the world. And the things that I may experience. But I will learn to trust in God and in His Word. Even if the entire world falls apart around me. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in time of trouble. And even if the mountains, the psalmist says, were to fall into the sea, I will trust you, God. I will trust you. Who is like God? Not who is like the beast. Who is like God? And I think Revelation 13 and the book of Revelation is just reminding us that if we build a life of worshiping God and of standing in awe and wonder and amazement at God and focusing our attention on God, then all the stuff that happens around us and all of this other stuff isn't going to negatively affect us as much. But when we get our eyes off of God, and our focused energies aren't on worshiping God, then we end up filling our lives with other things that we end up worshiping and bowing to and using up all of our energy and time on. And none of those things, God says, will ever bring the fulfillment and satisfaction and serene settledness that worship of me will bring. So Christians, we need to become worshipers. 
and realize that if we fill up our lives with God, then there's no room for anything other than God. But if we don't fill our lives up with God and focus on Him, then we begin to fill our lives up with substitutes. Things in place of God. Which is exactly what we see happening at the end of time. They wouldn't bow or worship the good God who only loves them and died for them. So they will fall down and worship a beast. Next week, we'll talk a little bit before we get into chapter 14 about the mark of the beast, because that seems that whole 666 and mark of the beast seems to just wig people out down through history. I hope to, I hope to bring a serene settledness to that whole mark of the beast 666 thing, okay? Starting next week, let's pray. God, we, we, we just pray tonight First of all, that our minds would be set on you. That our focus would be on you. That our energies and time would be spent on you. Because God, we've been reminded tonight that when you created human beings, you created us to worship. And as human beings, if we're not worshiping you, we'll end up worshiping something or someone other than you. And anything other than you, obviously, so much less. Why is it, God, that so many times as human beings we settle for less in our lives? We're satisfied with less rather than all that we could have in and through you. You're great, God. You're good. You are sufficient. You're infinite. You're immense. You're you're beyond our capability, even with your Spirit within us at this point, because we're we're still fallen, to, to be able to even begin to grasp how great, and how good you are. So God, I pray tonight that we would just be even more motivated, even more inspired to become true worshipers of you each and every day. That God, we will get up and that we will plan our day around you. That we will adore you. That we will stand in awe of you that we will wonder and marvel at you and all that you've done and all that you are. Help us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, guys, just want to give you this quick announcement. Don't forget, Sunday, we start a new series in the book of Romans on Sunday morning that I'm really excited about. So I hope you'll be with us on Sunday morning, 10 o'clock. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.